Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast, brought to you by Science Technologies. We interview outbound leaders at fast growth businesses to learn their secrets and bring you actionable insights. Thanks for joining us this week. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Enterprise Sales Development. I'm Eric Quanstrom, CMO at Science. And I'm Harry Evans, Director of Craft and Strategy at Science. Well, although we were minus one for this particular interview, it was a doozy. It flowed. And, and you know, if I'm super honest, I interrupted people. I interrupted Christina Brady more than I've interrupted any other guest. But I think it came with the territory and made for a great conversation. I regretted having to miss this one because Christina and I share a lot of background. I'm a big fan of Sales Assembly. They've been around for a long time. For those who haven't heard about Sales Assembly, shout out to Matt Green and Jeff Rossett. Uh, that said, it was a great conversation and, and listening to you guys discuss really just better decision-making was really insightful. It, one thing that stuck out, the idea of founders and, and senior leaders that there's so many people in the Series B, Series C situations that because they're innovative and very smart and very ambitious, they want to take the reins and do everything. And they, they think, okay, I'm going to launch an SDR org. I'm going to go get this done. Hearing her take and your take on where that usually goes and the best way to do these types of things was was fascinating. <laughs> Without a doubt. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, as chief strategy officer at Sales Assembly, Christina was full of insights when we went through, you know, how to disarm or using labeling or triggering the help instinct. There, this is an episode that literally you got to listen to the, the whole way through because there's so much value all the way to the very bitter end. And with that, we may as well go ahead and get to it. Here's Christina Brady. Christina, it's great to have you here on the Enterprise Sales Development Podcast. I think that you know one of the things that I'd love to start the conversation and talking about is really the mission and goals of Sales Assembly, where your role as head of strategy there is a pretty broad one, isn't it? It is. It's broad because the strategy for tech companies is broad, right? It's like, and especially, you know, doing what I do, I don't just have to think through strategy and product and delivery and curriculum and quality for the content events for one company. I have to think about how it is going to be absorbed and utilized throughout multiple at various stages of scaling. And so, you know, I feel that my positions prior to this have set me up for the most part for success, 50% because I've done a lot of things really right. And I'm, I'm double tapping on those and 50% because I've messed up a lot of things. And I'm also double tapping on those to say, okay, I did this. It was bad. Now you shouldn't do it. Let me spare you that mistake. Failure <laughs> is a great teacher though, isn't it? Oh man. It's once, once you take the fear the fear of the impact out of it. Like people are afraid to fail, not because they want to be wrong, but because what does this mean for my life and my livelihood and, and my brand and my ability to to move on? So I think failure to me is actually a cultural thing. Like you have to build a culture where failure is okay. Multiple failure, probably not okay, but where it's like take on a lab mentality and it's like fail forward. I think that's a culture thing. None of the same failures twice kind of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, are we like failure is is learning? You know, watching my son two years ago learn how to walk, he fell down a lot, and I could look at that and say you failed, or I could look at that and say now you know how to not fall down like that. Like you're learning where to balance. You're you're learning how to put one foot in front of the other. I think even as adults, we're all just finding different ways to learn how to walk. You know, it's funny. I think then that's a perfect segue into kind of like the the 
the bigger topic, if you will, of sales development, which you could argue is, is failure practiced on a daily basis, couldn't you? Absolutely. And it's because sales shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all, not even by company, but by person that you're talking to. Sales reps have to be among the most dynamic, flexible individuals that exist. It is, it is not the same thing every day because we're talking to different people with different experience and different roles and different industries. And so it's, it's so dynamic and you don't learn what's not working until you try it. It's one of those where you have to, you actually have to fail. Like there's no playbook that says you won't fail if you do this. And in that sense, it's intimidating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and even creating like at science, one of the things that we talk about and we even, maybe this is on brand, maybe not, but we even talk about always forming hypotheses and then testing and learning from those tests. Right. So, you know, you could make the argument that that is a failure state by definition, that which doesn't work and doesn't lead to formula provides information for how to move forward. I, I could not agree more. I mean, isn't every good idea in the world start with someone or a group of people saying, I think this might work, <laughs> you know? And it's like, like every, everything spans from that of, I think this might work, or I think this is a better way. I often think about how many incredible ideas never came to fruition because somebody didn't give somebody permission to fail in those moments and let them really see it through. It's just, it's always a lesson to me as I'm leading people and and talking to companies and and mentoring other leaders that like, you're going to miss out on some really incredible things if you don't create that environment where it's okay to test something out. So let's talk a little bit about some of the, maybe even methodologies, some of the tenants, some of the the learnings, if you will, you know, because sales assembly for those listening, you guys should check it out is really kind of like a, a scale on demand factory, chock full of great content for a scaling organization, right? Yeah, one, thank you. And that's kind of why why we exist. Coming previously from being in heads of sales or executive leadership roles at other very traditional tech companies, even if they were disruptors, in order to scale, you have so many different priorities that are competing for the same dollar, competing for the same time, competing for the same mental and emotional bandwidth, and competing for the same people. And It's impossible, especially for a lot of our members. So like our sweet spot for members are probably like, you know, series B, series C, 50 to 500 employees where you've got the infrastructure built, but $1 could hire you somebody new, could pay for marketing, could make a product change, or could train the people that you have. And you have to make those decisions every day. And what Sales Assembly is aiming to do is make it so that you you don't have to make those decisions. We are trying to cover the learning and development for every role in your revenue org, right? Your salespeople, your leaders, your enablement teams, your revenue operations teams, your your C-suite, right? Train them, helping you hire, right? We're one of the only companies, if not the only company in existence for tech that is going to help you hire without charging you anything above membership (laughs) and then also helping you strategize. So it's covering all of these different areas where you're usually like, gosh, do I spend a dollar on, on, on which one and what's the right move now? We're aiming to kind of remove that. So think of it as scale as a service. So our, our teeniest members have maybe three or four employees, right? And they're super bootstrapped and they're like, yeah, my VP of sales is also my sales rep who is also doing some HR work. And they're also building out enablement and they're doing the operations and the comp plans. And you're like, okay, I get that. We're going to help. 
You know, then we have large companies that have 10,000 employees like LinkedIn and Groupon who use it completely differently, right? So there's these outliers, but it's really that middle area where we're trying to help that tech company exceed so much faster than they would. And in so many cases, exceed where they maybe wouldn't have because they were too bootstrapped. You know, it's funny. One of the things that is rarely talked about, because it's it's hard to put a tangible price on it, is what is the price of better decision-making in any endeavor, especially scaling and growing an organization, which, you know, if you're at a Series B headed to Series C, I can't think of a more important area to kind of get right, if you will. Oh my gosh. Well, especially to your point, that cost is is monetary, certainly. But there's also a human cost and a culture cost and a morale cost. I mean, the more that you think about what decisions or lack of ability to bend and flex, the negative outcome of that sometimes is so much more than, than monetary. And that's where it kind of really hurts when you have brilliant people trying to do good things for the, the tech ecosystem, for people, sometimes for the earth, right? Like tech companies are famous for saying, we're going to make a product that, that helps humanity, right? It's not even an exaggeration. It's like so many tech founders are like, we have this big global idea of wanting to help. And then all of this red tape and bureaucracy, it just gets in the way, you know? And so it's like clearing the path for the do-gooders. We'll leave aside the the conversation on Facebook changing to Meta for the time. <laughs> I can't. I mean, like, I don't even know how to comment. I just like, okay, great. We'll just, you know, we'll be a duck on the water and just float and like watch that one. <laughs> so, what are some of the things that maybe is part of your content, as part of your purview, part of your perspective, that you're seeing, especially your sweet spot mid mid market companies kind of like maybe not doing as optimally as they could, especially when it, it gets down to sales development, going to market through outbound, how that motion lives in that organization. What's interesting about this level of company is you are now coming smack against the wall of all of the hires, role descriptions, roles and responsibilities, even sometimes the product, the comp plans, everything was built to get you to this point, right? Like if you think about the infrastructure of so many companies before they hit this, it's like duck, it's like this duct tape together engine. And you're like, this is working, right? Like we duct taped it together, we got it. And a lot of our members are now struggling with the fact that that's starting to fall down and break apart. And how do we move into building scalable, long-term efficient processes without making our employees our product, and our customer collateral damage. And that's where the struggle is. And it shows up in all different areas. Maybe a company initially outlined too small of or the wrong ICP. Maybe they hired people into roles that they thought were going to scale and now they're not. Maybe Mm -hmm. they hired leadership that is too green and doesn't know how to scale a company properly. And they're trying to figure out how they can get these managers training while they're trying to scale. Maybe they tried to open other offices and didn't have the infrastructure needed. And now those are crumbling and you have to determine, do we fold an office or do we keep it going? So it's like, you're at that point where you're like the machine that we built that also we're also proud of, right? What's so hard to shift is when you build this thing, even if it's made out of, you know, popsicle sticks and duct tape, you're like, I'm so proud of this. And then you have to kind of call your kids ugly and break it down and rebuild it. And that's also emotionally painful is to to take the things that you spent years 
sweating, bleeding over and go, okay, if we're going to scale this company, we have to do it all over again. And we're in this weird intermix of everybody just kind of coming up against that and trying to figure out what's the best, least painful way to do it. So it's, it's, I have conversations with companies at this stage of scaling every single day and rarely are two alike. Hmm. It's exciting for me, but it also goes to show that there's a lot of nuance here in terms of how companies scale. There really is no playbook that you can buy. That's really interesting. In fact, two phrases immediately pop into mind. The first of which I imagine you hear around your virtual halls all day long is what got you here won't get you there. Yeah. And and the second thing, you know, kind of riffing on what you just shared is that you know, the hard thing about hard things is that they're hard things. <laughs> you know, like right. like literally, you know, when when you have people that have that have won, that have gotten you to this point, that have, you know, startups especially, right? Like they didn't exist at some point in time. Here now is something successful in gaining product market traction, if not fit. And yet it's pretty easy to see where people get left behind. They top out, they ceiling. They and and I think the sales development teams and roles are probably like very very rich soil where a lot of this is happening, isn't it? Absolutely. It, w- what's incredible that I see and hear a lot, I heard it earlier this week, was a, a CRO at a company that was talking about how difficult it is right now to get the right people hired in roles and to move the entire company in the same direction. And they said, what's so tough about this is the product is good. Like the product is good. We just can't get it together. Like we can't get the company and the infrastructure together to deliver this product, right? So that's one element. And then the other element is talent is going to be the thing that comes first because your buyer is going to come across your human equity talent before they come across your product in most instances. And I was talking to a founder the other day, one of our members who said, you know, I'm I'm, I'm looking to hire a BDR team because my account executive, he's amazing. And like, he's not good at cold calling. He's not good at setting meetings. But if I can get somebody to talk to him, then they're going to buy all day. Right. He's a closer. Right. And I said, okay. And he's like, so I'm going to hire, you know, four or five BDRs to, to feed this guy leads. And I said, I have a couple suggestions for you. Don't hire an entire BDR team to supplement the learning gaps of the AE that you have. I'm sure the AE you have is is a closer and that's great. But at your stage, you should have account executives who who know how to do full cycle selling and your BDR should be supplementing that. But don't hire a whole team to feed to one AE because what happens one year from now? When you have eight AEs and 27 BDRs and now your ROI is completely under the water because you're hiring for the wrong reason. It's those little emotional decisions in the moment that go, I'm going to make this one decision for right now. And then suddenly a year later in the middle of scaling, you're like, do I have to riff people? Do I have like, what do I do? So it's just, it's the, the, the soil is absolutely rich, but sometimes people don't know how to water it. (laughs) Well, and in that case too, that CRO may not even be familiar with thinking about ratios, thinking about pipeline coverage, thinking about like, they're just not at that that point yet in the company's life cycle or sophistication curve to understand, you know, <laughs> what they're looking for. And it's, it, it sound or sounded very much like the human side, the emotional side was making the decisions of, I got to appease 
the one player that I do have right at the time. Right. Cause it feels like that's your biggest asset. And we are so focused on closing early on, right? It's like, we want to capture as much of the market as we possibly can for proof of concept, for brand recognition. So we can go out and get some bigger fish so that sales reps want to work here. Like right now, don't even get me started on the hiring landscape. It's crazy, right? How do we have a product that that successful AEs or BDRs or AMs want to sell? It all goes into that, but it makes us make some really, really emotionally driven, not scale focused decisions. And taking it one step further, you know, (laughs) this sounds like a shameless plug, but like prior to sales assembly, being able to offer some of that strategy and infrastructure build, that leader's option is to either figure it out, go with their gut and say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to feed the AE and see what happens. And then a year from now, we're going to fix it. That's painful. That's expensive. Or you hire a consultant, nothing against consultants, but they are expensive. They are time consuming. And they usually are not helping you to build so forward-facing and evolve with you. They're going to help you solve the now. Those are their two options. And so this is another area we we are trying to come in and disrupt in a really good way, which is, you know, that company's at a make it or break it point, right? If you start hiring people and spending all of your investment dollars on roles that aren't going to drive the business forward, you're going to be in big trouble. But who's, who's guiding you? How do you know? It's tough. Yeah. Well, and it, and I, I would suggest that that's where benchmarking best practices Mm -hmm. An understanding of what other companies at this phase of growth are doing is so invaluable, right? It's a path forward, isn't it? Absolutely. Well, and that's where community comes in, right? That's where network comes in. That's where having a sounding board of other folks who either have been in the role that you're in in a similar size company and, hey, here's what I did that worked really well and here's what we did that didn't. Or talking to a company that's where you were and they're six years past you and a couple million dollars further down the line to say, ooh, we really screwed this up and like it slowed us down. Don't do that. But it, it goes back to the, the power of community and the power of not living in a silo, especially as a founder or an early on VP of sales. I mean, I would go so far as to say some of the largest tech in the world should not live in a silo and only listen to the people around them. It's like, get out of your, get out of your company, find the leaders at other companies and help each other. Like, there's no reason not to do that, but the barrier to entry there of how do I go find people has always been a little bit more difficult. So I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, when is the right time, in your opinion, and what you've seen in the companies that you work with and the data that you have access to, when is the right time to really put the pedal to the metal and and start to scale an outbound team and an outbound motion? One is, do you have the easily identifiable size of prize? Do you know how many ideal clients you can sell to? Have you segmented it by territory? And do you know your average time of sale, right? So it's like, to me, it's always the opportunity will lead into the growth. So if I know my size of prize and how many accounts that we can possibly go out and hunt for, and I know the average production of one BDR-AE or BDR-AE combo, I back that into the size of prize and that's how I go and build my team. So it's like, you have to let the business help you. Don't not identify those things ahead of time and hire a selling team, hoping that they're going to sell your way into figuring out your size of prize. The other big thing is, do you have a proper mechanism for even identifying that? 
Mm-hmm. Right? Do, are, are you able to properly market and bring in an MQL? Do the people that you have selling for you know how to properly identify your ICP? They may have a 90-day closing cycle, but is that right? Do you have somebody looking at that and saying, you know, our product to properly sell to our ICP, it's a four or five-month sell? Or do you have them saying, actually, this should take one month. Why are we so slow? We are lacking process. I got to fix my process before I scale my selling team because good luck teaching 100 sellers how to resell your product. It's not going to happen. Right. So there's, there's all these little pieces first where you get kind of your first landing team in place. Most people think that landing team, their job is just sell as much as you can. Sure. But their team, that's that's to build the foundation, right? I want to glean as much data as I possibly can from that landing team so that I know how, where, and when to scale my business. I know how to cut my territories. I know if I should have different levels of ideal customer profiles, like an SMB or an enterprise. Am I a services business? Am I a product? Are we a subscription product? Are we a monthly product? Like <laughs> This is what the landing team is for, is to, yes, sell. Great. But then one, like, what do we do after we sell them to keep them, right? Are you considering customer lifecycle and scaling that side of the business too? Because we all know that comes last, but all your money is going to wind up in your existing customers. Are you taking care of it? So it's a lot of words for saying to get to that point in time, you have to make data-driven decisions. And can you sprinkle a little bit of excitement and risk on top of that? Yeah. Go nuts, right? Go nuts with a little bit of whipped cream and sprinkles of some risk and be like, you know what? We're going to do something crazy. Like do a little crazy things, but make decisions based on data from what you're seeing happen before you just build and scale. And then later realize that was too soon. We have the wrong people. We're selling the wrong product to the wrong customers. You don't want to get there. And and you and I both know people get there. (laughs) They get there. They get there. It's funny. A lot of times at science, you know, we're helping companies all throughout the spectrum. And a, a lot of them that are on the early end, the bleeding edge, if you will, of the curve of figuring out their product market fit journey. Um, one of the things that we we kind of advise our own sales team is to help them understand that, you know, appointments will be the, the outcome that we're all looking for. And that's the connective tissue and frankly, why you're hiring us. But really close second is your market learnings. Really close second are these hypotheses and and to you know steal your exact words because it's a core value here. Data-driven decision making is everything. It's learning about a market that I'll be honest, as a marketer or as a CMO, um, there's a lot of go-to-market activities that really don't teach you that much about anything, you know, and that you could waste a lot of yes. money without learning a damn thing. And you can you can waste a lot of money if you're also egotistical about it. Like yeah. you have to be willing to make a hypothesis and be wrong. And that's, I think, the other area where a lot of times ego takes over. Like it's painful to be wrong. It's painful to fall in love with an idea and then look at the data and go, huh. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that happens too. And it's like, that's also where like, being entrepreneurial and being at this stage of growth is so unbelievably humbling because there are brilliant yeah. people. None of us know everything, you know? Right. So it's dropping the ego a little bit too. Well, I mean, I, I actually think that it's kind of funny, right? Like <clears throat> Challenger built a, an entire book and or community around this idea of a commercial insight, which is essentially the things that you're doing that aren't <laughs> in your own best interest, right? Isn't it? Like, Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that Challenger is actually one of one of the members of Sales Assembly, and they did a, a session for us, and they were just talking about these data and trends. And to your exact point, 
what they focus on a lot is here's the perception, right? Here's what everybody thinks. And they think that because it's comfortable. They think that because they're in their echo chamber. But if you look at the data, that's actually a bad thing. Like, here's an example of this. And actually, it wasn't Challenger. It was uh, Todd Capone, author yes. of the Transparency Sale. And I remember that every sales methodology that I've been classically trained in, Covey, Sandler, Challenger, Medic, MedPick, right? I've taken all of them because one, I need to, and two, I'm just, I'm curious like that. Every single one of them teaches you this idea of if people see value, they'll buy. Yeah. That's not inherently wrong, but it's also inflexible because the the sub bullet of that is talk about price at the end, <laughs> right? Like right. once they're in love and they can't possibly say no, then you hit them with how much it costs. Right. And one thing that, and everybody does that, right? Everybody is like, when on the first call and you're like, well, how much is it? And they're like, well, before we get to that, Talk to me about your pain, right? And everyone's yeah. like, Jesus. What Todd talks about is he's like, everybody thinks the right thing to do is manipulate your buyer into falling in love with the product and being so overwhelmed with their own pain so that the price doesn't matter. And Todd is like, look at the data that doesn't actually work. Like that will work sometimes, but being openly transparent and grounded in how much of their budget budget it's going to take is going to build trust. And ultimately look at the data. You will close more deals by being transparent. And every time he talks about it, people are like, what? It's so uncomfortable to think about that because we've all been trained. No, 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 never do that. And Todd is like, but look at the data, right? It's like, we have to be willing to put down the preconceived notion and say, there's something interesting here that we should probably lean into and maybe paradigm shift a little bit. Well, I think one of the things that Todd might be onto is the fact that if you took away kind of like the B2B glasses and put back on the B2C glasses, mm. you'd recognize that every purchase that every human being that walks the planet in, you know, let's just call it at least first world countries, there's a price tag. You know, like we don't go to the corner market and haggle for really anything that I'm aware right. of, you know, like right. especially here in America, it's a very consumer led society where price is kind of in the lead. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know that I'm convinced that pricing out front, I always say to, to team members, you know, price is a weapon yeah. and it's like a sword that is really heavy and really cumbersome. You ever held like one of those really heavy swords? Okay. Funny thing. I actually have. <laughs> Dude would and not think know, I would have said yes, but yeah. <laughs> like one of the thoughts that occurs to you when you hold like a really heavy weapon <laughs> is like, I could really F myself. I could really cut myself. Yeah. Not only could I cut other people like as a weapon, but I could yeah. really do some damage to me. This is very dangerous. Yeah. Right. Price is the exact same in my opinion, because if you don't know how you're using it, if you don't know when you're bringing it up, if you don't know, like, for instance, that I'm using it to create transparency and trust, mm -hmm. then, oh boy, oh boy, like you're just, you're in deep water without kind of like a paddle or a float. <laughs> oh my God. Well, and if we think about the persona that is having to make that decision, probably more often than, than, than everybody else are our BDRs, right? They're at the very front of the funnel where there is no trust. There's no value. There's no relationship. None of it. And you're just a vendor. You're, you're actually just somebody annoying me, called me and I happen to answer, I happen to answer my email. And now you have all of the, the burden of having to make me want to spend my most precious non-renewable asset, which is my time. You're, you're right. emailing me about my time and then my money. Woo that is, that is a hot two things to come in a stranger and ask them for. Right. And the so BDRs, <laughs> yeah. So BDRs are the ones who are having to make that determination. And I think so often they're not given the guidance they need to, to your point, 
use things like price in the right way to garner trust. Because BDRs lose trust when someone says, yeah, I want to spend more time, but how much is it? And they're like, oh, the AE will go after the, you know, go over that. Well, now I go, okay, I don't trust you. And if they call someone and they go, hey, I have a product for $10,000, do you want it? That person's like, what? Like, you know, so they also have to find the right way to massage that. And I don't know in your experience, but I don't see a lot of BDRs getting taught to critically think about when to present items like that. Well, and the other thing that I think is missing in that conversation is that is a leading objection. If, if you don't think about any objection before you have a conversation, like the, the absolute worst time to be thinking about how to handle it, an objection is in the moment. Right. So, so, yes. <laughs> so yes. like, you know, the onus there isn't on, in my opinion, the poor BDR, um, yeah. it, it's on their, their teaching and training and understanding where you're entering a conversation from. Mm-hmm. at the beginning, you know, at the middle, like, I think it's well worth a lot of time and price is part of this thinking about of the people that I'm calling on of the personas that I'm going to be spending my day connecting with, where are they entering this conversation? Where should I enter this conversation? If I'm calling about a product or service, have they ever bought it before? Oh, that's a novel concept, right? Like if so, ergo, like, you know, we've, we've got a much different conversation than if not. What that does, healthy thinking-wise, is basically enables teams to go in and really have a conversation that meets the buyer or would-be buyer where they're at. Uh, you, know what I, you know what this makes me think of? Is like when, whenever I'm putting together curriculum, specifically for BDRs, SDRs, or even account executives who are full cycle, right? Having to sit their own meetings. Like when I started as an AE 16 years ago, I did not have a BDR. <laughs> I had to like make the cold call and to close the deal. And then I had to manage my renewals. It was, you know, like you, I did like one of those three things pretty well. Um, <laughs> but I think about- That's honesty right there. Yeah, I mean, like, right. You know, I think about when I'm walking down the street and there's somebody standing there with a clipboard And I know immediately when I see them, I get this feeling in the pit of my stomach and I go, oh God, they're probably out here for like a really good cause and something that I believe in. But one, I don't want to have this conversation right now. I'm trying to go somewhere. I have a little bit of stranger danger and I'm an introvert, so I don't want to talk to you. And I immediately think about just like how much I don't want you to approach me to the point where like, I would rather run into traffic than cross your path and have you go, excuse me, miss, like, you know are you interested in helping homeless pets? And I'm like, yes, but not with you. Right. So it's like this moment where I'm like, I believe in your cause, but I would honestly rather get hit by a bus than walk past you and have to do this exchange. And I think about that and I go, somebody like me, it's how we make our buyer feel when we cold outreach them and hit them really hard with our product. But that's what BDRs have to do. So anytime I put together curriculum, I'm like, what would make that interaction for me Maybe not make me want to buy, right? Because BDR, your job isn't to make them want to buy. No. What would make me take a pause and make me decide, maybe I maybe I don't want to run into traffic. Maybe instead, I can have a moment with you. And when I think about what are those psychological and, and verbal and body language steps, how do I then build that into a sales process? How do I build that into an email? How do we elicit that feeling? And I think that's what smart sales training does is you have to put yourself in the position of the buyer and then say, what would make me not delete your email? What right. would make me stop and talk to you? And then you have to train that to people. And so like, I, I didn't have these realizations you know, for, for six years after I started selling and I didn't have the training to know how to do it. So you just stumble your way through. Yeah. You make a lot more calls than you need to. 
Yeah, I think that that is really well put on the learning curve. And one of the things that always occurs to me, two decades on the buy side, will kind of like influence where this opinion's coming from. Yeah. I mean, you wear you wear the the title CMO, and suddenly you're on everybody's speed dial. <laughs> but like, <laughs> the funny thing is, is I rarely see people acknowledging or even like labeling a situation for what it is. And I mm. feel like that's the biggest underused technique ever. Right. Like, you know, we had a, a previous guest on enterprise sales development, Tibor Shanto, who I'm going to steal his phrase, but he's like, you know, BDR, SDR roles are professional interrupters. Yeah. So you may as well acknowledge that, own it for what it is, and then make the best of it going forward. Right. Because that is what you're doing in the situation. Yeah. I am interrupting your day. Yeah. But I do have a, a valid reason, right? Like the clipboard holder, like I see you darting for the traffic, but, and I know you're afraid <laughs> of this it. interaction. <laughs> However- That would make me laugh. I'd be like, you're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, having that like facility, if you will, that that understanding of the bias and the the context with which the other party, in other words, the prospect is coming into that conversation. To me, that's just, smart strategy of understanding like where we're starting and, and what what do I need to know to be even remotely successful? Well, I think you mentioned not too long ago, this idea of, of disarming. And that's kind of what that does is nobody expects anybody else to call out the awkwardness, but think about every life situation outside of selling. When someone just calls out the awkwardness and yes. then everyone lets out one breath altogether, like, oh, thank God you said something right now. I was thinking about it. Yeah. What you're getting on is like, it's actually the part of teaching people how to do this that I love, which yeah. is the human psychology behind interaction when we're in these different roles. And what are the disruptors? What makes people instantly disarm and go, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting you to say that, you know? I, and so, yeah. By the way, what a perfect word choice, because disarm is absolutely the exact label that I would put on the situation, which is, and ironically enough, they, they always talk about in sales, how do you build trust? Well, if you've labeled a feeling, what you and I are experiencing together, and we both share that same feeling or that same thought, that same thinking, all of a sudden, trust goes up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's... I also say too, that as a seller, like one of the crucial tools we have in our tool belt is that most human beings, at least the ones that are not inherently jerks, when you trigger the helper in them, that's a disarm, right? Yes. If you go from, I am opposing you to, oh, let me help you. Yeah. Massive tool. So you think again about that person with the clipboard who was like, hey, like the last one that I walked past. They were actually doing selling for ASPCA, which I am a monthly donor. Thank God, because I was able to be like, I already done it, you know, like, <laughs> but I remember I was already a customer. I'm already a customer. You don't have to do the thing. And as I was walking by, he goes, I really love your vest and just said that. And I like stopped and I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, I'm out here for ASPCA. And I was like, what? Like, I literally was like, what just happened? And I told him, and I was like, one, I respect what you're doing out here. I am already a customer. I'm glad that you like my vest. And I kid you not, 10 minutes later, I got my coffee, came back. And as I walked past, he was like, Hey, I love that vest, but he forgot that he had already talked to me. It was just like his go-to was like compliment what they're wearing. Yeah. And I think about and that to him that he thinks is a disruptor to compliment yeah. me, to play to my ego, to make me go, Oh, well, thanks. Let me tell you where I got it. Like doesn't yeah. work. 
But had somebody, like if somebody were to say, hey, excuse me real quick, this is so awkward for me and I'm really sorry, but it's my job and it's something I really care about. Can I, can I just give you my pitch for like five minutes and if you hate it, you can walk away, right? In that moment, if you did that to me, I'd be like, oh my God, I know this has to be so hard. Yeah, go for it. I have five minutes, right? You've put down my, oh my God, don't talk to me. And you've triggered my helper where you've told me like, this is very hard for me. I am struggling, but I have to do it. Can you just let me get this out? And now I'm going to go, oh yeah, like I lean into that, right? So how do you as a BDR trigger the helper, trigger the lean in, trigger the, yeah, you know what? Let me, let me put this down. I, you're a human. I'm a human. Let's have a human moment. Um, this is where it's fun for me. Yeah. Maybe because I'm a freak, but like, I'd like to think through all this stuff. I don't think you're a freak at all. And I think that the ideas that we've talked about here are, are heavily interconnected for those that are paying attention. So, you know, yeah. forming a hypothesis that can go to any kind of playbook or any kind of interaction that does trigger the help instinct to find the right person to make a sale to yes. the right, like circumstance or need or, or, you know, objective that you may have in your organization is arguably the highest and best use of any BDR's time. Hands down. I mean, you make another point that we didn't even touch on, which is oftentimes the person you're talking to is not the person that you need to. And it's like, now I'm going from seller to friend builder. Now I'm going from, yeah. this is a person who I can get on my side to get, like, I, I can actually not have to do this awkward thing because right. I have somebody on the inside, right? So yep. it's also as a BDR, you're looking out for your champions all the time. And it's not a waste of time to get someone on the phone who's not the decision maker because half the time when I had to make my own deals, it was because I got somebody on board who didn't have the pressure of being the buyer, but that I was able to just talk to and be a human with and like make them laugh and like things like that. And then all of a sudden they're like, like, let me introduce you to so-and-so. They're great. And then I go, oh, now it's yeah. a warm lead. Right. And I wasn't talking to the right person and I didn't give up. Well, and the other thing that you've got on your side there, and I think that all folks listening to this podcast, when you're actualizing any of these techniques in the real world, the thing you have on your side is that there isn't ever the expectation on behalf of prospects that you know my company, my org chart, my inner workings, my priorities, what keeps me up at night. Like you don't know any of that and no one expects that you would. Right. You know what I well, mean? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, what you're talking about, I'm actually glad that you're clarifying this because I often hear those who are leading and facilitating who are often in a buyer seat talk a lot about how if you're a BDR, you have to show me that you can provide immediate value. Yeah. They're not wrong, but then if you look at the BDRs hearing that content, that is unbelievably intimidating. It is. There's a lot of clarity that is needed there because immediate right. value is interpreted to your point as you have to know me, you have to know my struggle, you have to know if it's a fit and go ahead, get on stage and provide me value in five minutes. I think most BDRs or even AEs don't know how to do that and they overthink it and it becomes this sort of job paralysis. So if there's an area to lean in, it's when a buyer says that, what does that actually mean? And I think that's what you what you were just hitting on is that they're not expecting you to know everything about their business. They're expecting you to have a reason for reaching out. Yes. That's what the value is. Like and, and you said it earlier, right? Like I I don't know for a fact that this is what you need. I could not make that determination and it would be irresponsible and arrogant for me to try, but I've worked with folks like you and it was great for them and it warranted me reaching out. Am I off base? It's a very different approach than 
you know, 50 of the top Fortune 100 companies were able to double their revenue. And I know you can too. That's not what they mean by value, but you hear BDRs interpret it that way. But right? well, well put by like, you, you slip right into that marketing persona pretty easily, which is nice. <laughs> you know, I, I work with a lot of marketers, but, <laughs> so, hey now. but like, right. And, and, <laughs> but marketers, like, you, you know, you kind of get that where it's like, I when know. someone says, show me value, most sellers aren't going to, they're not going to get what that means and they're going to do it wrong. You know, what's so funny about this is one of the things that I've always kind of like laughed at is we use the right terms, but we don't really ever pay attention to what they mean. Um, And and what you just said, couldn't agree with that more. Like we use the word sequence and yet like nobody ever takes a deep step back or step up and, and says, well, what does that really mean? What it means, you know, I think I'll give you my definition Yeah, is I'm actually taking part in this top of the funnel journey, just to establish and open a conversation. Yeah. So some of the things that are really important to me are interest, curiosity, right? Like having you at least hear and become aware and familiar with my brand or service or what I am representing. And I think that the, the give and take there is like you just said, not having too much pressure on myself where I don't even remember this in my entire career where a one call close ever happened. And so given that nobody's getting married on the first date, like let's actually sequence these events because every mm-hmm. sales cycle is just, again, there's another word cycle mm-hmm. implying that it doesn't just happen all at once in one fell swoop with one interaction as such, how do we plan kind of the rhythm and the cadencing of that sequence so that everyone can play their role and by the way, I know you're a theater major, correct? If I'm not Gosh, wrong. I was. Wow. And, and so playing one's role <laughs> in a sales cycle to me feels like the right and optimal way to get the best performance. Well, and and what are you what are you asking for? Like I love the fact that you brought up this idea of the one call close because when we also think about what the data shows us. I have never seen a company that doesn't celebrate when someone says I made a one call close. And when you celebrate that behavior without digging into the data, you're also discouraging the right behavior. Because to your point, I don't think that anything of value should be accomplished in a one call close. And when someone's like, no, I, uh, I one call closed them. It's like, that's great. Tell me about the process. Tell me what happened. Are you sure that they're fully bought in? Did they have marketing information before they spoke to you? Because if they did, you didn't close them. The product did. And that's great. It means we have strong product-led growth. How do we incorporate that marketing into the hands of our other sellers? It's like, I, every time I've heard someone be like, I won't call closed them. I was like, I need to know more about that. Because most things of value, you don't just buy on a whim like that. And we celebrate it. and And then we tell people like, I have to speed up. And it's like, you don't have to, you don't have to speed up. You have to do the right process. And every stage of your sales process should have an end in mind. And until about stage six or seven, that end in mind shouldn't be closing the deal. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I would also say that if you're a PLG company, you probably shouldn't have an SDR BDR team, (laughs) you know, like just that simple. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let your product sell at that point. You know, if you get one call closed, you don't need an SDR. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that this is knowing one's own sales cycle, again, back to the wording, um, and what's appropriate at the time. So that, again, you can test, you can fail, you can like roll hypotheses out and learn 
from the market yes. and what the market will will tell you in the form of each one of the personas you reach out to and what are their reactions? What are their yeah. objections? What are the things that they're telling you? You know, oftentimes it's better to get negative information. Oh, I can't do a deal with you because of X. Oh, I can't buy your product because I've already got this product. Oh, I can't do that. Oh, I'm not interested. Oh, this isn't relevant for me, right? Like That's those right. kinds of learnings are huge. Oh my God. And you know who has all of them? You're, if you have BDRs, they do. Like yep. there is so much market data and analysis that you could use to improve and scale your company faster by using your SDR BDR team as a hive mind of data collection, because that that's word. what they are. Like, yeah, like they're hearing everything you need to know about doing what you do better every single day. And if you don't have a system to collect that, why are you handicapping yourself? Yeah. I don't hear a lot of people using an SDR BDR like that either, where they're your ear to the ground more than anybody. What an asset. Well, I, I would actually lay the, this is kind of lame that I'm going to say it this way, but I'd lay a lot of the blame there on marketing departments. On you know my you can say my, it I can't yeah. yeah my peers my brethren <laughs> other CMOs like if they don't see or are involved with kind of like the SDR team the sales development arm of their business to get these market insights right like if that's somehow rolling up to sales and completely divorced from what you're paying attention to then man I don't know you're missing like oodles of super information. That a lot of people would pay for, candidly. Like how many how many companies pay six figures, and that's probably under anticipating it, right? For More. market research. Yes. Right? Like there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that companies who could be using that to scale in better ways to get the market research to guide them, we can be more nimble than that. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's again, that's that's the disruption that we look for is like your people rarely serve one purpose at this level of growth, right? Like yeah. a BDR is not just a BDR. Like they may be focused on their day to day, but how you leverage that role to get a positive ROI outside of a front end seller, like the opportunity is there if you know how to seize it. Boy, isn't it ever. I feel like I could go on for hours here, but I'd be doing Me too. <laughs> a disservice to the listeners if we didn't kind of like round third and head for home. Christina, tell the listeners where they can interact with you, find out more about Sales Assembly, whatever you care to share. Yeah, I am on LinkedIn, which I think that's like probably what everybody says first, right? They're like, you can find sure. me on LinkedIn. Christina Brady, I am on LinkedIn. My email is Christina at salesassembly.com. These kinds of conversations, working with companies and executives and leaders to help them scale smarter, that's that's exactly not only what I do every day, but I do it because it makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. So please reach out. I am here happy to tell anybody all they need to know about sales assembly. If you know nothing else, we're a membership-based company. For one membership fee, you get unlimited access to everything that we offer. No upsells, no nothing. And it's for every employee in your organization. So come on, come join us if that's interesting. <laughs> I love that. That's great. And I would encourage everyone to do so especially those that are, that fit into kind of like the sweet spot of sales assembly. So yeah. companies that are right in that series B, series C range, tech companies that are scaling and frankly don't want to stub their toes like we talked about throughout the episode. Um, you know, there is advice and there is thought leadership and there are, there are insights to be had. So take advantage of uh, Christina in the way that we have today. 
Thanks again. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. <laughs> Anytime. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. 